0: Father, this morning as we go to your word, we thank you that you have preserved it for us for all of these years that it might comfort us and convict us, guide us, protect us, admonish us, correct us, set us on the path that you have decided that we should go, that your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I ask you, Lord, to open our eyes to it today. Give us a vision of what you desire for your church and for each of us individually that we may follow strongly in the steps of our rabbi, Jesus Christ. For I ask it in his precious name, amen. Vision, that's what we need. We need a true vision of heaven. Not man-made, but God-inspired. Unfortunately, we have shaped our view of heaven by the way that we live here on earth. Would you say that? And we've got it all backwards. In reality, it is a biblical view of heaven that should shape the way we live life on earth. Otherwise, the reality of heaven is of no earthly good at all. It changes nothing. Someone once said that vision that looks inward becomes duty, vision that looks outward becomes aspiration, vision that looks upward becomes faith. I want to extend that statement one truth further that if vision that looks upward indeed becomes faith, then vision that looks faithward becomes victory. It makes us want to be better men and women. Amen? John the Apostle put it plainly in First John chapter five and verse four, when he said, "For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith." In other words, if our vision is continually aimed toward heaven and upon the God who lives there, our growing faith will become noticeable." you following that? And it will be noticeable in the form of increasing resistance over this world's pull on us. We will begin to exhibit victory victory over our selfish desires, victory over an ungodly lifestyle, victory over worry and fear, and victory over the ever changing circumstances of life in the very real world in which we live, victory over the lust of the flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the boastful pride of life we will begin to emerge as overcomers in the intense wrestling match over choosing to do life God's way or to do it our way. Victory. Everyone wants it. We all strive for it. We enjoy the taste of it. To us, the thrill of victory is like heaven, isn't it? As a matter of fact, heaven is victory defined in the book of Revelation heaven is promised repeatedly to those who quote overcome the world and who is the one who overcomes the world he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God the Savior of the world and receives him by faith that's what it says in first John chapter 5 he who pursues the things above, where Christ is seated at the place of authority on the right hand of God according to Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. The ones who have refused to shuffle along with their eyes to the ground absorbed with the things right in front of them clouding their vision those who stay alert who are looking up and are aware of what is going on around Christ because they know that's where the real action is overcomers are those who see things from his perspective They are changed and they bring about change. They are the ones who overcome. In the words of C.S. Lewis, he said, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. That's a profound statement. And so we need a true vision of heaven for one simple reason, that a heavenly vision should motivate us to a life of earthly victory. And uh, that's why I believe God gave the apostle John the big screen view of what is to come. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4 for a minute before we get to our main text. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, John writes After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Now talk about the ultimate in home theater viewing experience, right? The screen behind me has nothing on what John saw in his vision. From chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to chapter 22, verse 5, John gets the inside vision, the inside scoop. It's as if God peeled back the veil between the earth and heaven and let John experience it all. Repeatedly throughout the following chapters, this is what we read. We read things like, And I saw, and I heard, and I looked, and I took and I ate and I tasted and I saw and I heard and I saw and on and on it goes throughout those chapters heaven was a sensory experience for the Apostle John he wasn't just a bystander he personally participated in this vision it was total immersion it was an immersive experience which tells me that heaven is not just a fantastic idea It's real, amen? It's real, as real as it gets. And the problem, however, is that you and I read his descriptions. Uh, When we do it, it's easy to become frustrated with them, isn't it? We get frustrated with the way he describes them. Gates made of pearls, walls made out of precious gemstones, and streets made out of pure gold, which is transparent. How do you figure that? I mean, what is that? I get the impression that John was as frustrated trying to describe what he was viewing as we are trying to imagine it. He was attempting to describe heaven with earthly terms and it was nearly impossible. So don't get too hung up on the metaphors, okay? When you wonder what on earth is heaven like, remember, in reality, there is nothing on earth like heaven. John did the best that he could using earthly terms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yet I'm convinced that God left us this vision specifically for practical reasons, so that we might be moved to live a life that counts for something, a life that is changed and influences change in others a life that overcomes the junk we experience in the world and turns it into something that glorifies God because this life is not as good as it gets I hope you believe that at the end of the book the angel said to John in Revelation chapter 22 beginning in verse 6 these words are true and can be trusted And the Lord God who gives his spirit to the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must happen very soon. Listen, says Jesus, I am coming soon. Happy are those who obey the prophetic words in this book. And then in verse 10, he said to me, do not keep the prophetic words of this book a secret because the time is near when all this will happen. Whoever is evil must go on doing evil. Whoever is filthy must go on being filthy Whoever is good must go on doing good, and whoever is holy must go on being holy. Now, a vision of heaven should motivate us toward victorious lives on earth, and John gives us that vision. Again, Revelation chapter 21. This is where we're going to camp out here this morning, so turn in your Bibles there, and let me read to you verses 1 to 8. Our main text. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write. For these words are faithful and true and then he said to me it is done and the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end and I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son but for the cowardly and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, that vision of heaven ought to motivate us towards something. Otherwise, why in the world would God give it to John to put in the Bible for us to read today? And I think the first thing that it ought to motivate us to is we should be motivated by the picture here of a new creation. That's in verses 1 and 2. Again, over 2,700 years ago, about eight centuries before John wrote this, God pulled the prophet Isaiah aside and he whispered the same exact truth in his ear. Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 17 says this, For behold... Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. You get that? Look at what it says in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. By the mouth of at least two witnesses here in the scriptures, God has confirmed that he's going to create a, a new heaven and a new earth. I think we can all agree that something new is needed. Maybe a facelift, a, re- a renovation, a, com- a complete overhaul. Let's say that. As a matter of fact, that's... Exactly what John implies here in this text. The word new refers to something not only new in time but also new in character. John's statement refers to a heaven and an earth freshly made, something unheard of, something unusual, something different in character, in mode, and in form. A heaven and an earth of a different quality. In other words, it will be a radical conversion. Again, For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, it says in verse 1. Now, there were three rabbinical views on this, three major ones. The first was that this present world will be renovated and returned to the original state after creation. The second one was that the world returns to chaos and recreated with a completely cleansed experience. And then the third one was that the world is completely destroyed and totally, a totally new creation replaces it. And this seems like it would be the most accurate translation according to this text and also to another text in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. If you hold your finger in Revelation 21 and turn to 2 Peter 3, Beginning in verse 10, we read these incredible words, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because which of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for, what is it? New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, remember what I've told you in years gone by. What's the therefore? Therefore. If you look back to see what the therefore is therefore, what we just said, what Peter just outlined, is the therefore. It means something. It means we ought to apply that in such a way. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. See You see, the vision of heaven ought to motivate us to something. some way that we live victoriously on this earth. Yet, as John Piper commented here, what Peter may well mean here is that at the end of this age, there will be a cataclysmic series of events that bring this world to an end as we know it, not putting it out of existence completely, but wiping out all that is evil and cleansing it by fire and fitting it for an age of glory and righteousness and peace that will never end. Now whatever the definitive meaning is of, of this verse in Revelation 21 there is a radical conversion that's going to take place amen says Peter it ought to motivate us to godly lives a heavenly vision ought to motivate us to victory on earth now Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never Pass away in Matthew 24 35. The implication is this therefore, change the way you live, live according to my words, not according to this world. Okay? An amazingly small amount of information can be found about the new heaven and the new earth in Scripture. I've just given you most of it already. But notice this one major fact stated here in verse. 1 of chapter 21 of Revelation, is that there is no longer any sea. Does that bum you out? Didn't you picture heaven like laying on a beach somewhere with the ocean waves just coming in? I mean, that's what everybody thinks of, right? Some have taken this figuratively to mean that, since the sea seems to symbolize a source of evil in Revelation in numerous places, as well as unrest, agitation, and intimidation, that John was indicating that there would be no trace of evil in any form in the new creation. While that certainly seems plausible, there is no reason why a literal view of John's word should not be taken here. Presently, almost three-quarters of the earth is covered by water, preventing it from being inhabited by people. Okay. John's vision may, I'm not saying it does, but it may indicate that the new earth will be wholly inhabitable. Again, whatever John saw was a heaven and an earth that had undergone a radical conversion from what we know it. But there was also something else about this new creation that awed him, and it's that that it will have a beautiful complexion, a beautiful complexion. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. What's more beautiful? Than a bride. In John's human frustration, he describes the homeland of the new earth in terms of a new city as ready for eternal bliss as a bride who has been fussed over and prepared exclusively to be the most attractive thing this world had to offer her groom. That's what John is is seeing here. This bride city called New Jerusalem is in fact completely holy, transcendently beautiful, and impeccably pure. Unlike the old sinful Jerusalem with which John was all too familiar, that city not only rejected the bridegroom, right, rejected the bridegroom's proposal when he came, but she murdered him at the altar. Now here, John sees a new community and compares it to the most beautiful analogy earth had to offer, a bride. A commitment robed in excellence, someone once said. A commitment to purity, a commitment to oneness, a commitment to to unity, a commitment to fidelity. To John, heaven like a bride was a vision of beauty and everything that you could possibly want. Now you and I didn't wake up this morning to a world that could be described as a bride beautifully adorned for her husband, did we? Did we? I mean, we woke up to a world full of grief, stress, and restlessness, and confusion. And part of the world that you and I woke up to today is experiencing violence in its streets. People afraid to take the bus because it might blow up when they're on it. Another part of the world awoke to the sounds of starvation and disease. You may have woken up to a world of physical pain or spiritual devastation or emotional fallout. Every morning when I wake up, I realize that I desperately long for a different kind of place to call home, don't you? A new place one which is radically transformed and beautifully dressed, someday that place will come. It will. William M. Dyke was a young man who became blind at the young age of 10 years old. And despite his handicap, he grew to be a very intelligent, witty, and handsome young man. And while attending graduate school in England, William met the daughter of an English admiral, and the two soon became engaged. And though never having seen her, William loved her, exclusively and very, very much. And shortly before the wedding, at the insistence of the admiral, William submitted to a special treatment for his loss of sight. Hoping against hope, William wanted the gauze from his eyes removed during the ceremony. and He wanted the first thing that he saw to be his wife's face. And as the bride came down the aisle, William's father started unwinding the gauze from around his head and around his eyes, still not knowing if the operation would would be a success. And with the unwrapping of the last circumference, William looked into the face of his new bride and he saw her for the very first time. And he said, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. And as she looked into those eyes, she said, realizing that they were the windows of his soul, because she had never seen through his eyes either, she exclaimed, at last, to which he answered solemnly, bowing his head, yes, at last. My friends, we are the ones who are blind, whose eyes have been blinded, But there is coming a day when our eyes, like John's, will be fully opened and we will see as we're supposed to see. And we will see the beauty of all that God has prepared for his children. And you know what I think we're gonna say? At last, at last. You and I ought to be motivated to be better men and women because of that vision of a new creation. Secondly, we should be motivated by the proclamation of a new community. Look at verses three and four of this chapter, 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no longer any death. There'll be no longer any mourning or crying Pain. The first things have passed away. Community here is a huge part of what the church is about, right? That's what we talk about. That's what we're supposed to be about, at least a large part of it. If there's one thing that a church ought to be, it's a community, amen? And some of us have recognized that loss over the last year and a half. In the book of Acts in chapter 2 in verses 42 to 47 community just jumps right off the page. In John 17 during his high priestly prayer in verses 20 to 26, Jesus concludes his high priestly prayer with a plea to the Father for what? Unity in community. Here in Revelation 21 and 22, heaven is portrayed as a community, a city A place where mutual activity, common life, shared interests, and people who perfectly interrelate with, with God and each other dwell. Perfect community is what heaven is. Can I say that again? Perfect community is what heaven is. It's a picture of God's heart. It's who God is. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist and function in perfect community. That's his desire for us. What is community? How would you define community? Someone had suggested that community is characterized by people who are radically committed to God and who irrationally love each other. It's an interesting definition. One church defined it this way, and we say this in our covenant when new members join. Community is knowing and being known, loving and being loved, serving and being served, celebrating and being celebrated. In its ultimate form, that's a pretty good picture of what heaven might be like, don't you think? Famed (coughs) columnist Ann Landers once gave this picture of what true community is and what it isn't. She wrote, a man once spoke with the Lord about heaven and hell, and the Lord said to the man, come on with me, and I will show you hell. And they entered a room where a group of people sat around a huge pot of stew, and everyone was famished and desperate and starving. Each held a spoon that reached the pot, but each spoon had a handle so much longer than their own arm that it could not be used to feed themselves couldn't be used to get the stew into their own mouths so the suffering was absolutely terrible and the Lord said come on now and I will show you heaven they entered the room identical to the first pot of stew group of people same long-handled spoons but there everyone was happy and they were full and they were well nourished I don't understand, said the man. Why are they so happy here when they were miserable in the other room? Everything is exactly the same. The Lord smiled and said, it's very simple. Here they have learned to feed each other. You saw that one coming from a long ways away, right? Why don't we see that? If we know that to be true, why don't we see that here on earth? The Bible says that in the day when we meet Christ we will know fully even as we are fully known that's 1 Corinthians 13 12 and we will finally love without restraint or fear and we will be loved completely Revelation 22 3 says that we will serve God together in Luke chapter 12 verse 37 surprise among surprises says that we will even be served by Christ Himself. Can't even imagine it. And finally, when Christ judges what we did on earth for the sake of His kingdom, He will celebrate and affirm us. There's a a bunch of scriptures about that. But we will forever celebrate and worship Him. He will be the object of our celebration and worship. See, heaven is true community. And John saw that. It's a place where we will experience personal communion with God. The tabernacle of God, it says here, is among men. We will experience an intimacy with God, which is absolutely impossible in this world because of sin and death. God's tabernacle, His dwelling place, will be among people. But not only that, but He Himself will dwell among us, just as it was in the beginning, in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the wife and the the man hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why did they hide themselves? Sin. The first sin had taken place. They were playing hide and seek with God, but it wasn't fun and games. The only difference between Genesis 3, 8 and what heaven will be like here in Revelation 21 is that we won't be playing hide-and-seek, will we? No need. We will be completely transparent before God, and we will not be ashamed. Better than hide-and-seek, it will be more like what Robert Fulgham calls the game of sardines. You know that game? Robert Fulgham writes, he says, I like the game called sardines. In sardines, the person who is it goes and hides, and everybody goes looking for him. When you find him, you get in with him and hide there with him. Pretty soon, everybody's hiding together, all stacked up in a small space like puppies in a pile. And pretty soon, somebody giggles and somebody else laughs, and everybody gets found. Medieval theologians even described God in hide-and-seek terms, calling him Deus Absconditus the God who hides himself. But me, Fulgham says, I think God is a sardine player and will be found the same way everybody gets found in sardines, by the sound of laughter of those who are heaped together at the end. I like that thought, don't you? Heaven is a place where we will all experience personal communion with God, but it's also a place where we will experience permanent companionship with God. Note the terminology in verse 3, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. This is significant wording when you consider that throughout the Old Testament, this was the language of covenantal promise to Israel. Whenever God pronounced the blessings of a covenant on his people, he included a statement like, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God my dwelling place will also be with them and i will be their god and they will be my people it's all throughout the old testament that kind of community is what he originally intended for men and women until sin spoiled it all but jesus came that it might be restored heavens not only going to be a community where we will experience personal communion and permanent companionship with god but it's also a community where we will experience the perfect comfort of god That's in verse 4. And we know these words very clearly, and we especially recite them at funerals when our loved ones have passed away, especially Christian funerals. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. Oh, what a day that will be. No tears, no death, no grief, no pain, no kidding. The aged apostle John must have marvelled at that thought because he had never experienced anything like that. Imagine a world with no tears. Can you imagine that? God himself promised that he will one day wipe every single last one of them completely dry, blotted out, obliterated for all time. Remember when your mom or dad or your older brother or sister wiped away your tears? No, all you can remember is when your older brother or sister gave you tears, right? <laughs> Ever had a friend wipe away your tears? Ever had a spouse wipe away your tears? There's something in the touch of someone who loves us that seems to absorb all that hurt, all that fear. Friends, let me encourage you this morning with these words that someday God himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. God Himself. The same hands that created the universe will caress your face. Wrap your head around that. The same hands that were spiked to a beam will dry your eyes. The same touch that healed the sick will lift your head. The same hands that broke the bread will break the curse. No more graves will be dug ever again. No more caskets will be closed. No more pictures of war-torn streets or orphaned children. No more news reports of terrorist attacks, earthquakes or ethnic cleansing. No more hospitals, no more disappointments, no more arguments with friends, no more hurtful accusations, no more divorce. Can you imagine a world without any of those things? No more, no more, no more. How can that be? Verse 5 tells us how. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Right, for these words are faithful and true. So we should be motivated then to be better people because of the promise of a completely new condition. Heaven will be physically incorruptible. I remember what it was like when we moved into the parsonage next door so many years ago. It was newly built for our family, okay? No one had ever lived in it before. Everything was new. New walls, new carpet, new paint. It was beautiful. Now that we've lived there for many years, wear and tear have taken their toll, paint scratched in places, the floors have worn, the siding has dings in it. Sometimes I wish I could snap my fingers and make it all new again. I wish the same thing about this earth, don't you? I wish I could make it new again. Like when it was first established, before sin entered in. I can't, you can't but God will. Amen. Moving into heaven will be better than moving into a new home. And I know I'm, right, I'm about to move into a new home in a few, few weeks. But moving into heaven would be so much more than that. So much more. New responsibilities, new experiences, new understanding of faith, a new concept of hope, new realization of love. Heaven will be physically incorruptible. Amen? And it is biblically undeniable. Look at verse 5. Right, for these words are faithful and true. God's word is faithful and it's true and it's theologically irreversible. Verse 6. Then he said to me, It is done. Literally, you know what that means in the original? It means it has occurred. It's a done deal, my friends. Not only are these words faithful, not only are they true, but from God's point of view, they've already come to pass. It's already been done. They're as good as accomplished. And that should be motivation for us to live differently, shouldn't it? We've got to get this notion that we are citizens of this world out of our minds because we are not citizens of this world. You and I are part, if you're in Christ, you're part of another kingdom, the kingdom of God. Amen? And it is near. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is near. Carolyn Aran wrote in an article in Christianity Today, That in the Gospels, Jesus makes a simple proclamation with seismic implications. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And for those of us who grew up in the hot, scary shadows of brimstone pulpits, the command to repent causes an involuntary shudder. Many of you may know that. But the Greek word is metanoia, which is more of an invitation than it is a threat. It means change your mind. It means reconsider. Consider what? According to Jesus, she writes, everything you thought you knew about reality. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is near. Most of us think heaven is somewhere out there. The place where God watches from a distance and we will one day join him there. But for the biblical writers, heaven is close. When Jesus describes the invisible but very real realm that God inhabits, he lets us know that it's not only out there, but it's also as near as the atmosphere surrounding our bodies and the air that we breathe. God is the initiator. We love because he first loved us We're here because he thought of us and welcomed us into his world. Yes, he stands at the doors to our hearts and he knocks, but we need only to let him in. We don't have to summon him from another country or another galaxy. The kingdom of God is already in our midst. It's already near. It's here. So repent. Change your mind. This isn't all there is, but the kingdom is near enough for you to experience it spiritually. We need not only to repent of sin, but we need to repent of what we think we know about reality and the way that God pervades it. We don't have to invoke God's presence. We just have to attend to it. We don't have to invoke His presence. You need to recognize that He's here right now with us, And that heavenly vision should motivate us to live victorious lives on this earth. We should be motivated by the picture of a new creation. We should be motivated by the proclamation of a new community. We should be motivated because of the promise of a new condition. And finally, we should be motivated by the offer of a now choice. A now choice. Verses 6 to 8 wraps it up. Then he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Heaven is available, my friends. And it will be eternally satisfying. It's hard for us to imagine it. No matter how happy we claim to be here, there is one thing for sure. Satisfied is something we are not. That's because God has purposely placed a longing in our hearts for something more than what this world has to offer. You know, in God's kingdom, there will be eternally satisfying resources. There'll be eternally satisfying responsibilities, and there will be eternally satisfying relationships. And it is available to anyone, let me tell you, anyone who wants it. To anyone who thirsts for it. It says it right here. But although it is universally offered, it is not universally distributed, because there are those who will not accept it. They reject it. They think that this world is the heaven that they want. For the life of me, I cannot imagine why. I can't. Not anymore. I suppose I could have before I came to Christ. I was under such delusion that this world was the best that it gets Well, maybe their eyes are blinded maybe their roots are so deep into this life that they decide it's not worth the risk maybe they simply don't buy all of this stuff thinking it's it's just a, a myth or wishful thinking but i know one thing whatever it is that keeps people away is simply not worth it if you're one of those people who haven't made the decision to open up your heart to Christ and to God's grace, please read the words of these verses very carefully because the offer is for you. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. This is not the first time that the Bible gives this offer. It was given in Isaiah 55, verse 1, in John chapter 4, verse 10, and verses 13 and 14, in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. And it's not the last time that this offer is given in the Bible either. In Revelation 22, 17, at the end of the book, the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. God has been and still is offering the refreshing water of eternal life to those who thirst for it. And get this, it doesn't cost anything to you. It's free because Christ already paid the price on the cross. And we just celebrated that when we had communion. Look, you can't earn it, you can't buy it, you can't work for it, you can't steal it, you can't get it by bribery, you cannot negotiate a contract for it, you've got nothing to trade for it, but you can have it just by opening your heart and receiving it. And that's what it means to become an overcomer. Who is the one who overcomes? John, earlier in a letter, wrote these words in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that? Because if you don't, that's your your entrance. You got to believe that. Notice the promise in Revelation 21, verse 7, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You know, what God looks at you when you believe in Jesus Christ, and he says, that's my son. That's my son. By the way, ladies, to be referred to as a son is not the least bit sexist. Don't go down that road. No more than it is for us men to be referred to in the Bible as the bride of Christ, right? To be a son biblically is to be an heir to the inheritance. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're in Christ, that's you. That's an incredible honor and privilege. This is the essence of salvation, an intimate personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, and that is what heaven is all about. Not only is heaven available, but the choice is inevitable. The choice is inevitable. Verses 7 and 8, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. See, just as God pulled back the veil of heaven for John to get a glimpse, he offers each one of us the choice. No pain or no hope. That's the choice. Heaven or hell. That's the choice. Eternal life or the second death. That's the choice here in verses 7 and 8. I didn't make this up. God wrote it right here in the Bible. Here's the reality. You're either going to end up in verse 7 or you're going to end up in verse 8. That's it. There's no door number three. The scary thing is that you don't have to be the person that is saturated with vile, monstrous, unnatural vices, a murderer or a sorcerer, or an idolater, or a trafficker in sex, or a liar. All you have to be, it says in verse eight, is unbelieving. That's what it says. Yes, there is a hell. And by the way of clarification, it's not the opposite of heaven. Heaven has no counterpart. Satan is not the opposite of God. God has no opposite. And God's dwelling place has no opposite. As harsh as it sounds, hell is nothing but a garbage dump. Catholic professor of philosophy, Peter Kraft, once wrote these words. He says, God makes no garbage, but we do. And a good cosmos must eventually purify itself of spiritual garbage like egotism hate, greed, cowardice, or lust, God cannot allow that garbage into heaven. And if we do not want to throw it away, if we clutch our garbage so close to us that we become that garbage, there's only one place left for us. Unquote. When my daughter was a toddler, she used to refer to that place as the fireplace. She'd say, I don't ever want to go to the fireplace, Daddy. Why in the world would anyone want to? Tell me that, why? Let me finish with this. The acclaimed foreign film, Three Seasons, is a series of vignettes about life in post-war Vietnam. I got this from Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God. And one of the stories is about Hai, a cyclo-driver at the bicycle rickshaw. And Lan, a beautiful prostitute, both have deep, unfulfilled desires. Hai is in love with Lan, but she's out of his price range. And Lan lives in grinding poverty and longs to live in a beautiful world of the elegant hotels where she actually works, but in which she never spends the night. She hopes that the money she makes by prostitution will be her means of escape of that poverty, but instead the work brutalizes and enslaves her. Then Hai enters a cyclo-race and wins the very top prize, first place. And with the money that he wins, he brings Lan to the hotel. He pays for the night, and he pays for her fee. And then to everyone's shock, he tells her he just wants to watch her fall asleep. Instead of using the power of his wealth to have sex with her, he spends it to purchase a place for her for one night in a normal world to fulfill her desire to belong. Lon finds such grace deeply troubling at first, thinking Hai has done this to control her and to manipulate her. And when it becomes apparent that he is using his power to serve, Rather than to use her, it begins to transform her from the inside out, making it impossible to return to that life of prostitution. Now, let me say this. Jesus Christ, who had all the power in the world, saw us enslaved by the very things that we thought would free us So he emptied himself of his glory and became a servant in Philippians chapter 2. He laid aside the infinities and the immensities of his being and at the cost of his own life, paid the debt for our sins, purchasing us the only place our hearts can rest in his father's house. Knowing he did this, will transform us from the inside out as High's selfless love did for Lon. Why wouldn't you want to offer yourself to someone like Jesus? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm convicted to the core about how much it cost you for my freedom in salvation. And not just mine alone, but everyone who sits in these pews and chairs and everyone who hears these words. Lord, I pray for every soul that may be in this place today or within earshot of this message, that if they have not yet received the water of life to satisfy their thirst, That by your Holy Spirit, you would allow them to see clearly, Lord, the invitation that Jesus gives. That he holds out his hand, his nail-pierced hand, his resurrected hand. Because of his love that purchased our salvation. And may they receive that. May they take that hand and receive you as Lord in Christ. It will never be a decision that they will regret, Lord. I haven't. Never will. May you be praised and honored this day. And may we hear that someone has received you into their heart. For I pray it in Jesus' holy and precious name. And everyone agreed and said, Amen.